1 John chapter 5. We looked at half of one verse last week, 5a. We're going to be looking at 5, I'm sorry, 6a we looked at last week. We're going to look at 6b through verse 11 this morning. So, we've broken the pattern of one verse a week. The general outline for today will be three points. God's sure testimony is point one. Point number two is God's superior testimony. And point three will be God's saving testimony. So his sure testimony, his superior testimony, and his saving testimony. have your Bibles open to 1 John chapter 5, verse 6. Look halfway through verse 6 and read with me. It is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. And the testimony is this that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Amen. Let us ask the Lord one more time to help us. Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us as we discern your word and as I teach it. Father, we ask for your help because we need it, for we are poor sinners in need of a Savior, even in our interpretation of your holy word. So we ask for your help now, by your Spirit guide us. All for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. In the mid-15th century, by God's providence, an amazing invention began to revolutionize the world of literature. Known today as the mechanical movable type printing press, but nicknamed then as the Gutenberg Press, after its designer, Johannes Gutenberg, this machine would make the printing of books and the circulation of ideas faster, more efficient, and an awesome force in the proclamation and dissemination of the written word. Used by God for the good of his people, the Gutenberg Press would go on to inspire a print culture that Protestants would later rely heavily upon in the printing, even, of Martin Luther's 95 Theses, 64 years later. But the first book ever printed was Gutenberg's greatest accomplishment, the Latin Vulgate. The Latin Vulgate was largely the translational efforts of St. Jerome in the late 4th century and would go on to be declared the official translation of the Bible by the Roman Catholic Church after Luther's 95 Theses were printed and Protestantism was on the rise. The battle for theological truth and the official harbinger of that truth had begun.
one thing that both sides knew for certain, the testimony of men, whether it be from Martin Luther in his questioning of the popish traditions contained in the 95 Theses, or the reaction of the Roman Catholic Church at the Council of Trent, points to people listening to the testimony of men. One way or another, by what they believe to be the truth contained in each of their messages. And today we're going to hear of a greater testimony than the testimony of men. One that dwarfs them all, because the source of this testimony is not from mere men, but from the ultimate witness, the maker of heaven and earth. Last week, we were learning from the Apostle John about the one who came, not only by water, but water and blood. And we spent some time on searching the scriptures in the hopes of defining what the water and the blood meant. If you recall, we discussed how the church has wrestled with interpreting these words, water and blood. And we found it important to remember the context of the Apostle John's original audience, that of the docetic false teachers who were teaching that Jesus was just a mere man and that he had the Christ Spirit descend upon him later in his life and then the Christ Spirit departed from him before his death on the cross. They taught this because they held that the Christ could not substantially be physical nor could the Christ die. We noticed how important it was to interpret the water and the blood teaching in the light of that first century theological battle. And that the water was pointing to the beginning of the earthly ministry of Christ at his baptism. And the blood was pointing to the end of his earthly ministry in his state of humiliation at the cross. The water and the blood ultimately being redemptive symbols that exposed that false teaching of docetism, which held that the Christ was rather a transitory spirit and not a man, a man who came and died, and furthermore, a man who came and died and rose again. But even still, we didn't want to discount that varied interpretations offered throughout church history either, because we noticed that all of them had theological truth contained within them whether it was the interpreters who saw the water and the blood as pointing to the purity and sufferings of Christ, or those who saw the water and the blood as pointing to the two sacraments in the New Covenant, namely baptism and the Lord's Supper, or even those who, like John Calvin, who saw the blood and the water pointing exclusively to the piercing of Christ at the crucifixion, where the Apostle John testifies that water and blood flowed from his pierced side, we want to stop short of calling into question any of these other interpretations because all of them are also true when we consider this text in its fuller sense. I'll give you an example from the Venerable Bede, St. Bede from the early 8th century. Listen to how he interprets the water and the blood. The Spirit bore witness that Jesus is the truth when he descended upon him at his baptism. The water and the blood bore witness that Jesus is the truth 
when they, bo when they both flowed from his side at the time he was crucified. That would not have been possible if he didn't have a genuine human nature. The Spirit makes us children of God by adoption. The water of the sacred baptismal font that cleanses us and the blood of the Lord redeems us. They are invisible in themselves, but in the sacraments, the Lord's Supper and Baptism, they are made visible for our benefit. I hope you see in that one, that one interpretive note by one early church father, he takes all those things that we're discussing and he says, yes, this is the definition of the water and the blood. And so I hope you're, you're, you're tracking with me that the water and the blood specifically point to, as redemptive symbols, the baptism of Jesus in the beginning of his earthly ministry and the ending of his ministry and his sufferings on the cross. And yet all those other interpretations have merit and have theological import. And what it's ultimately working up to is the beginning of verse 6b. This is God's sure testimony. The Holy Spirit's testimony is sure in Christ. Read with me again. It is the Spirit who testifies. That is 6b. Let's stop right there. It is the Spirit who testifies. Well, we don't need to have it explained to us this much that the Spirit is the Holy Spirit. It most likely is capitalized in your Bibles. There was no grammatical capitalization in the original manuscripts. But in the context, we understand that it's the Holy Spirit that is being spoken of here. It is the Spirit who testifies. But what is the Holy Spirit testifying of? Simply, of Christ. The Holy Spirit is testifying of Christ. Well, what about Christ? Well, of His birth, of His ministry, of His miracles, of His life, of His teaching, of His death, of His burial, of His resurrection, of His second coming in glory, of the Gospel. But why is it the Spirit? Why is the Holy Spirit the one who testifies? Well, you may recall in John's Gospel, John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says this. Well, actually, actually, no, I'm sorry. John 15, starting in verse 26, Jesus says this. When the Helper comes, that again is the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will testify about me. And you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. And so we see the place of the Holy Spirit in testifying about Christ. Christ had, in a sense, prophesied that the Holy Spirit would testify about him. Certainly after the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit would not just bring to the remembrance of the apostles the things that Jesus had said, but he would, also he would also show them things that were to come. And truly, this is still Jesus speaking to the apostles through the Spirit. We've highlighted time and time again the inseparable operations of the Trinity, that each person of the Trinity act in unison. 
And so when the Spirit does a work, we can say in a sense that it is also Christ who is doing that work. And that's why we understand in the epistles when the Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. Because the three are substantially one. And so that should come as no surprise that in John chapter 14, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. But does that mean Jesus is exclusively the truth? No. Because they're substantially one in their deity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so you notice in the latter part of 6b, the reason John gives for the Spirit being the one who testifies is because the Spirit is the truth. So brothers and sisters, I hope you're seeing that what Jesus has, the Spirit has. What Jesus and the Spirit have, the Father has. The three persons are one. Now I don't want to spend too much time on this next point, but it needs to be said. There is a post-Reformation historical context to this verse and what it leads into. There are questions about this reading. You may notice, if you're reading out of the New American Standard Bible, that there's a footnote. It says this. A few late manuscripts add, in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that testify on earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood. And these three agree in one. Now, if you're reading the King James Bible this morning, you may have noticed that this versification is a little bit different. Same if you're reading the New King James Version. Also, the Dewey Rems Bible of the Roman Catholic Church. So, we need to at least address in part why there is a, what's called a, uh, of textual variant in this particular verse. Why is it that the New American Standard and the one that I'm preaching out of today says that there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and blood, and these other translations say there are three that testify in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that testify on earth, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three are one. Why the added clause in the King James, in the New King James, and the Dewey Rems? And to answer this question, again, briefly, we just need to touch upon the story of what's called the Textus Receptus. This longer clause found, found between verses 7 and 8 is known as the comma Johannium. Comma means short clause. Johannium means pertaining to John. So this is the short clause pertaining to John. And it is a rather important issue in, his, in scriptural criticism. This is a big issue for even the faithful who debate whether this verse should read one way or should read the other. But to understand the short story of the Texas Receptus, we must understand what happened in history. I gave a little bit of a way in the introduction with the Gutenberg Press and the printing of the Latin Vulgate. We need to understand Renaissance humanism, something called Ad Fontes, and someone named Desiderius Erasmus. Simply put, 
historically, there was a revival in the study of classical antiquity, at first in Italy, and then it sprang across Western Europe in the 14th, 15th, and 16th centuries. This is right in the crosshairs of the Protestant Reformation. The term ad fontes means going back to the sources. One of the things that was done in this Renaissance humanism movement was going back to the sources, the original sources, to uh, influence art, literature, philosophy, and the scriptures. And so it was that one Desiderius Erasmus, a Roman Catholic priest, wanted a new translation of the scriptures, and in particular the New Testament. And he devised a new Greek translation of the New Testament. And in fact, Desiderius Erasmus, this Roman Catholic priest, is considered one of the greatest scholars of the period. He's not a lightweight. And so in the 16th century, when Desiderius Erasmus was compiling what became known as the Textus Receptus, the new Greek translation of the Bible, he did not include this comma Johannium in his first or second editions. And so I'm going to read one quick excerpt from someone I trust, a textual scholar named Daniel B. Wallace, and he says this. The reading, the comma Johannium, the longer section in this part of 1 John that we're reading, this reading seems to have arisen in a 4th century Latin homily in which the text was allegorized to refer to members of the Trinity. Now again, as we discuss the water and the blood, I hope you see that there is a fuller sense to Scripture. And there is a way in which we can see even the Trinity in the water and the blood. But what started out as a marginal note and a homily in the early church found its way into the actual text of Scripture later in church history. Daniel B. Wallace says as much. From there, from this 4th century Latin homily, which is a sermon that was given, from there, this longer phrase made its way into copies of the Latin Vulgate, the very one that was printed by Johannes Gutenberg with the printing press. It was the text used by the Roman Catholic Church. The Trinitarian formula, known as the Comma Johannium, made its way into the third edition of Erasmus's Greek New Testament. So he didn't put it in his first edition, he didn't put it in his second edition, and then he chose to put it in his third edition because of pressure from the Catholic Church. After his first edition appeared, there arose such a fervor over the absence of the comma that Erasmus needed to defend himself. He argued that he did not put in the comma because he found no Greek manuscripts that included it. Desiderius Erasmus was being honest with the text. Once one was produced, someone says, hey, I found one. Erasmus apparently felt obligated to include the reading. In the final analysis, says Daniel B. Wallace, Erasmus probably altered the text because of politico theologico-economic concerns. He did not want his reputation ruined, nor his New Testament translation to go unsold. So there is a quick history of why, if you're reading the New King James, you have a different reading in your Bibles. But what is the theological implications of all this? What is the theological implications of the Spirit and the water and the blood testifying? What is John getting at? And this, I believe, 
goes back to the Jewish roots of John and goes back to his argumentation. The Apostle John, I believe, in putting these three together, the Spirit and the water and the blood testify, is going back to the legal system found in the book of Deuteronomy given by the Lord. We all know this. Deuteronomy 19.15 On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. So why not just say the Spirit testifies of Christ? Why add the water and the blood? Is the Spirit not enough? Well, again, to John's Jewish argumentation, and would definitely be understood by those in the congregation who were Jewish that were raised on the Scriptures, they would understand, I see what John's doing. He's making a case. He's entering a case into a legal courtroom. And this even happened to Jesus. When Jesus said things in the Gospels, and they said, you can't say these on your own authority. And Jesus would say, I, you know the law. It's not just on my authority that I'm saying these things, but the Father testifies with me. Now, why was Jesus saying that? Because he was going back to this Jewish argumentation of Deuteronomy 19.15 that says, on the evidence of two or three witnesses, every matter shall be confirmed. I think it's summed up nicely by William Hendrickson, who helped us last week. He said this about this particular theological point of these three that testify. All three witnesses, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, all three witnesses say the same thing. Before a court of law, the factual evidence of Jesus' baptism, water, and death, blood, is in complete agreement with the Holy Spirit. That, I believe, is what John is doing. That is why he is pointing to these three that testify. Now again, can we interpret and understand the doctrine of the Trinity in this particular verse? I think we can, when we understand the fuller interpretation of Scripture, what we called last week the sensus plenier, the fuller sense of the Scriptures. That, I think, is what the Latin church father was doing when he was preaching this text and said there are three that testify in heaven, the, the Father, the Word, and the Spirit. But I don't think it's necessary to John's point. And I actually don't think it's original to John's writing. Rather, John, I believe, wrote, there are three that testify, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. And one of the historical facts that backs that up is in the Trinitarian controversies of the early church against Arianism, no church father cited 1 John 5, 6 as a testimony to the deity of Christ. Now, if 1 John 5, 6 said that, that there are three that testify in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Spirit, that's the Trinity. That's a clear declaration of the Trinity, and they would have used it. And this is Darius Erasmus noticed, there are no early church fathers who talk about it. There are no early Greek manuscripts that have that reading. And it didn't pop up until many, many centuries later in church history, after this Latin homily made its way into a text. So that's the indicative, theological indicative, that these three that testify, according to the legal standards of the Old Testament, are true and are saying the same thing. And not only hold up in court, but they are a sure testimony because it's the testimony of God Almighty. So here's the imperative. 
If this is God's sure testimony, and there is no higher standard of truth, think about that. Think about the gospel. Think about the way we present it at the water cooler of ideas, even in our workplace or in our families. How often we are to consider the arguments of men. And yet this is a divine argument given by three witnesses, the spirit, the water, and the blood. Do you think about the truth of Christ this way when you read the headlines of our ever-sinking culture? Do you think of this surety of God's testimony when you are gripped with fear or depression or doubt? There are three that testify. The spirit and the water and the blood. And the three are in agreement about Christ. But not only is it a sure testimony about Christ, because it is a divine testimony, it's a superior testimony. That's our second point. Look at verse 9. John is drawing us right to this point. Because we have this sure testimony, because it's a divine testimony, that holds up in a, uh, a legal courtroom, indeed a divine courtroom. John says this, read with me in verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men... The testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his son. Now, in the previous verse, John, I believe, made a Jewish argument. An argument based upon two or three witnesses from Deuteronomy, from the Mosaic Law. And I believe he's continuing to make another Jewish argument. Not from the Mosaic Law, but one that is commonly known in Jewish circles as an argument from the lesser to the greater. The Apostle John is making this Jewish argument when he says, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. Let me show you some other places in Scripture where this Jewish tactic of argumentation was used. It's used by the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. Chapter 5, verse 9, he says this, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? That's an argument from the lesser to the greater. How about Paul again in the very next verse? For if, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? This argumentation is not unique to John. Matthew said the same. If you then, actually this is Jesus' words as recorded by the Gospel writer Matthew. Jesus says, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in Heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? Even Jesus used this Jewish argumentation. And lastly, if the ministry that condemns men is glorious, the law, we spoke about this in previous messages, if the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious 
is the ministry that brings righteousness. This is what John is doing. He's making a Jewish argument. If we receive the testimony of men, and we do, every single day we receive the testimony of men. John is saying, if you do that, why would you not receive the testimony of God who is greater? It's a Jewish argument from the lesser to the greater. This is an apologetics plea that we can use when we're sharing the gospel to people. You know, you believe so-and-so, and you see it to be true. Why is it that you deny the Lord who is the truth? In fact, there is no higher standard of truth than God himself. The author of the book of Hebrews said it in chapter 6, verse 13. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear an oath by no one greater, there was no one greater by whom God could swear an oath. So he swore by himself, saying, Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply you. That is a promise that God made to Abraham, because Abraham was in the new covenant just like we are. That is not a promise that is given to the Mosaic community or the Abrahamic community in whole. It was a promise that was given to Abraham as being the head of the Abrahamic covenant and indeed is a blessing that we all can enjoy and lean upon and rest in. God has made a promise to us in Christ, brothers and sisters. And that promise is true. And that testimony is sure. Rest in that and share that with your neighbors who are lost. Because the sad reality is that the testimony of men is received over the word and the testimony of God. In what ways does that look to be the case in your life? In what ways does the unbelieving world hear or not hear of the testimony from God concerning son. And how are you to know if you've said enough? Well, that's law. Let's talk gospel. Read with me in verse 10. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his son. And the testimony is this. That God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. This is good news. John begins by saying, the one who believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. As we've noticed before, in terms of confessing Christ, this word believes is a present active participle. It's not believing once and then rejecting it. It is believing now and continuing to believe. It is present tense and it's active into the future. The one who has this kind of faith 
the one who believes in the Son of God, if you are continuing to run to Christ, if you are continuing to hold on to Him and to trust in Him alone, John says, you have the testimony in yourself. Well, what is the testimony? The Spirit, the blood, and the water, the gospel in Himself. The testimony that John says God has given concerning His Son. This is the testimony that you have in you if you are resting and trusting in Christ. Paul said something very similar in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7. He said, said it this way. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. So when I asked you the question, have you said enough? Have you witnessed to Christ enough? Have you brought his name up at the water cooler enough of ideas? In your workplace, in your families, in your conversations? The answer is Christ. Christ. Because the one who believes in him the testimony and the promises that God has given concerning His Son are yes and amen in us, and we can rest. Who among us doesn't want to share Christ more? Who among us doesn't wish we were more bold for the gospel? Found more creative ways to share Jesus with those who we love. Whom of us lay our heads on our pillows at night thinking, have I said enough to that person that I love who has still not confessed? Oh, wretched man that I am, I don't do enough. Christ has done enough. The one who believes in the Son of God, Jesus, has the testimony in himself. But that doesn't negate or reduce from the command of the law to believe. It is a command to believe the gospel. God commands all men to repent and to believe. And so I resonate with Robert Plummer's observation on this particular verse when he says this. On, on the verse, the one who does not believe or trust in God has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed in the testimony of God. Robert Plummer says this. Not believing God's testimony about his son is not a matter of private religious opinion but it's a matter of obedience to a divine revelation. We, as followers of Christ, can rest in the fact that Christ has done it all. He's paid it all. I want to sing the hymn, Jesus paid it all. But to the unbeliever, believing the gospel is not a matter of private religious opinion, as if you can just choose if it's true or not. It's a command that has eternal consequences, good or bad. Remember we've said the most important question that we're all going to have to answer when we breathe our last breath, and I say we meaning all of humanity, is who is Jesus? And the answer you give while you still have breath in your lungs makes all the difference in the world. 
I want to drill down on this reassuring gospel that we have in this verse. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Lest we continue to feel the weight of the law on us because of our lack of works. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We can never read this enough. Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to get a picture of who we were and who we are in Christ by the Apostle Paul. Which is making the same point that the Apostle John is making in this verse. and grace. Next week we'll be back in the book of Ephesians. I'm trying to grease the skids for my brother. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh indulging the desire of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace we have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in the kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that we would walk in them. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony, the gospel, in himself or herself. Amen. Rest in that. Share that. In conclusion, with all that we have learned from this short passage this morning, let us remind ourselves of these three truths. God's testimony about His Son, Jesus Christ, is sure. God's testimony about His Son, Jesus Christ, is superior. God's testimony about His Son, Jesus Christ, is saving. For there are three that testify. The Spirit, and the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for the mercy that you have shown us in your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the clear message of the gospel that you have given, testified by three witnesses. We thank you for the Spirit of life the spirit of truth who works in us now, your children, 
who were once the children of disobedience. Lord, help us to rest in the gospel this morning, knowing that all, all works necessary for salvation were done by your Son, Jesus Christ, on our behalf. That is good news. And we are desperately in need of it this morning. And Father, I also pray that you would embolden us all to share this testimony concerning your Son, Jesus Christ, with those who are perishing around us. May it be our spiritual worship, even this day. In Christ's name we ask it.